is film like milk. Yes. It's got culture in it. And it's mm, damn it. <laughs> Whole milk, skim milk, medium milk. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk Could me? Could you milk me? Hi, and welcome back to Age Like Milk, the podcast where we decide if a film has gone bad in the mind fridge of your mind. I am one of your hosts, Paris Herbert Taylor, and with me, of course, is David William Rogers. Hello to you. Hello, darling. Hello. Um, Unseen by the fine folks out there are the technical difficulties that I seem (laughs) to be experiencing today. So it's a double whammy of the dramatics of this film and the dramatics of this podcast Uh, and speaking of that david what is the film we are doing today the film we are doing today is sunset boulevard 1950 and this was directed by billy wilder and the writers are charlie's bracket billy wilder and dm marshall jr and i had never seen this movie haven't heard about it until a few weeks ago which i feel kind of ashamed because You and I saw this in a park a few blocks from our house on a big inflatable screen with a food truck. And it was a fantastic experience. And I I enjoyed this movie. Had you seen this yes. or heard about this before? I had never seen nor heard of this film. And I feel terrible because it is on the AFI 100 list. Yeah. So it's definitely considered a classic of American cinema, which we will soon discuss mm. why. But before we get to that fine part where we talk about movies. We do have a guest with us today, David, yes. uh, someone that I know very well, Connor Pritchard. Hello to you, my friend. Hello, Paris. Hello, David. What's Thank up? you for having me. I'm excited about being here. <laughs> Great. Good. Um, Connor and I met through Script Anatomy, which is a great uh resource for writers and wannabe writers and connor i pulled up your bio here from script anatomy thought we should shout them out since they were the catalyst for introducing us so bear with me as i read this very well written um paragraph about you so connor pritchard grew up in the san francisco comedy scene with comedians as his babysitters he had no chance at a normal life but nevertheless he made it through school and studied at Loyola Marymount University. I'm butchering that as an Australian. But then after college, you were drawn back to the family business. You became a production assistant. Then you started producing your own comedy shows, including the TV show Workaholics, which is a favorite of mine. And then Let's Get Physical for Pop TV. Um, But now in between shows, you're a freelance creative and you also teach at Script Anatomy, obviously. And I don't know how recently this was updated, but you are developing projects for all things comedy with Bill Burr and Al Madrigal and the content group and Thunder Road. Is that all still correct? Mm, two of them fell apart, but I got some new <laughs> <laughs> like they do. Uh, I should probably update that. But now I'm, I'm currently have been hired to turn a unscripted series, a famous one called Cheaters. David, do you remember that show? Mm. Yeah, they would I do. catch cheaters in the act. So <laughs> I've been brought on to turn that into a scripted series, and I've been having a blast researching infidelity and all the different types of cheatings over the past two months. So I'm hopefully going to package and pitch that soon. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you say that these things fell apart because I think it's important for listeners of the podcast to understand that we obviously talk to a lot of really cool creatives and people who've done really cool things, but... The path to success is not a smooth or non-bumpy one, is it? 
No, not at all. I mean, we want our careers as creatives to be this linear ascension where we just get better and the success and the stage and the accolades get bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's not. I mean, it's very cyclical. You go through these constant boom or bust cycles where it's kind of like a death and rebirth. Like you hit a wave and you ride it out, then it dies out and you kind of got to go through this death phase and figuring out what you're going to leave behind and then you're reborn in some kind of new creative phase. So that's really how it works. And I think you see that a lot, just people going through these constant cycles. And the people that make it are the ones that can stick through a few of those cycles. Yeah. There's a podcast I love called Happier in Hollywood. Shout out to those ladies over there. And they always talk about um, the business being a war of attrition, you know, and you basically just have to hang on for dear life. Um, But let's talk about your career a little bit, because I think it's super interesting. So obviously we know you come from a comedy family. Was there a point in your life when you decided that writing was really the way through for you? Yeah. Um, So my mom, uh, she used to manage this comedy club and I really took after her, but all the comedians would stay at my parents' house because they were like the most put together out of that crew. And I remember waking up at like 10 a.m. noon uh, and all the comedians would sit on our couch and my mom would like order takeout food in the morning and she would put on soap operas and mute the channels and the comedians <laughs> would do the voices and I would just sit there. It was like, you're, as a kid, it was like a your own version of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And, and I'm sure all of the comedians were hungover mm-hmm. coming down off of cocaine. But, <laughs> um, but we would sit there as kids and just laugh and they would encourage us to kind of do these jokes. And you, I kind of learned timing at a pretty early phase of soaking that all in. And I knew I wasn't a performer. I didn't have that. But I knew I could organize those people kind of like my mom did. That's awesome. Well, that's such an incredible masterclass in so many parts of this business. I think that's such a unique thing that you guys got to experience. So was there a group of kids that would come over as well? Like other comedians, children would be there? Yeah. Well, so in our crew, when I was a kid, um, my parents had me and I was the first kid born into the comedy scene. So I was like literally passed around from comedian to comedian as, you know, babysitters. And then Robin Williams and his first wife um, had their first son, Zach. So it was Zach Williams and I were the kind of two first kids. And then a few years later, there was a bunch more, but we were the two first ones kind of born in this crazy circus. So yeah, eventually I became friends with a bunch of kids, but I hung out with a lot of weird adults when I was younger. (laughs) I mean, you're just naming some people that are just like the grandfathers and daddies of comedy. I think at least for David and I growing up, I mean, we always talk about Robin Williams and how influential he was to our love of movies, Mm -hmm. but that is such a unique story, Connor. And I can totally see why workaholics was what it was because I mean, if you muted workaholics, I feel like you could do Mm -hmm. silly voices with these characters. So can you tell us a little bit about how that show particularly came together? Yes. I mean, it's a crazy story and I'll try to condense it. Uh, I think I've told it before, but um, I was a production assistant and my uncle who 
took over an old porn studio out in the valley to start a production <laughs> company. This is, we're not even into the crazy part yet. <laughs> Every good story starts with, and then my uncle took over a porn studio in the valley. Yes. And <clears throat> I borrowed $7,000 from him to shoot the web series that would become Workaholics. And I'd met those guys at comedy shows. And Adam was a ticket taker. And we started... Uh, producing a midnight comedy show with Adam and all these people. I met like everyone that's famous now, like Whitney Cummings and they, they all were kind of just getting started. So we shot um, the web series that became Workaholics in a porn studio out in Chatsworth, California. And as we were kind of getting picked up and going into pilot mode by Comedy Central, the FBI started investigating my uncle and found out he was running a boiler room. And so he got arrested and went to jail and we went off to make a show. <laughs> so you didn't have to pay him the seven grand back. <laughs> no, was, yeah. was Giovanni Rabisi in that in his boiler room? Oh yeah, I mean there was some <laughs> Giovanni Diesel? Rabisi type character. Am I stupid? Yeah. What what yeah. is a boiler room? <laughs> boiler room is a very capitalistic American thing where you you have a bullpen like a roster of desks and you have just a bunch of hardcore ramped up salesmen selling something like if you've seen wolf okay. of wall street yes, when he's yes. giving those speeches that's kind of like a boiler room mm-hmm. but it's also uh boiler room uh, kind of implies that you're raising the money for nefarious reasons which okay my, my, so it's a, is it illegal to have i mean a boiler room gray just, gray area very gray area yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. All right, well, this is clearly a cultural you, you could watch, phenomenon. It's actually a great movie. It's called The Boiler Room. It's Giovanni Ribisi, Vin Diesel, a bunch of other actors you'd recognize. Uh, okay. Really good movie. And that's all they do in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Sick. It's yeah, like it sounds like a movie. 2000s version of Wall Street. Yeah. E- exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, and now you're, you know, creating projects. And how do you like working kind of alone i mean i know you collaborate with people but how is that you know on a day-to-day basis kind of not having what you would have call like a quote-unquote a traditional job you know it's funny i i used to be so introverted and uh like a lone wolf type when i was started and i loved to write alone and now i'm finding that i'm the opposite i really enjoy collaboration i really get replenished my energy when i'm working with other people So I usually, my process now is I don't even start a script or a project until I either have IP or talent attached. So for instance, the one I'm working on now, it's IP. I can build a world around that. But now I just go meet with actors, actresses, comedians, and I kind of, my writing style is like a a tailor. Like I'm building them Mm -hmm. a custom suit or gown, showcasing all of their capabilities so usually I just go get talent attached and then I write them the perfect show or movie. It's awesome. Yeah, and it's it a fun, like, good formula. Yeah, it's a yeah. fun collaborative process. And then you're takes, not trying to bend, bend someone's voice to your idea. You're building your idea around their voice. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, That's uh, so sick. it's fun. You're removing, sometimes as writers, our ego can get wrapped up in the projects and we can really feel like we have something to say, but, I like this approach because you're just like, no, I'm helping build a platform or a playground for this person. And that's well, interesting. Interesting that you mentioned a platform because I do want to talk about this film, obviously, but 
you recently launched a platform for writers. I am one of the sort of beta testers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, only writers, uh, joke on OnlyFans, is coaching and community for screenwriters and storytellers. So there's group coaching, there's courses, um, content. It's really focused on career strategy, which I think there's a lack of content around that. So it's not so much around like how to become a good writer, which is what Script Anatomy does and does it very well. It's more about, okay, you're a pretty damn good storyteller. Now what? What is packaging? What do agents and managers do? What's the actual gauntlet, like the hero's journey of selling a show? Mm. Um, is how do you create IP when you don't have any money? So all of these things that kind of help storytellers diversify their skill sets and find different ways to kind of navigate this clusterfuck that is Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> It's truly a clusterfuck. Um, okay, well, speaking of other clusterfuck type things, uh, let's talk about the career of our main character, Norma Norma Desmond. I'm like Norman. No, that's not it. Norma Desmond. Um, so, did we do the synopsis, David? I know I've been cutting it out. We did not. We did not. Okay, not. is it your turn? Oh, my turn. I think it's my turn, so I'll take a quick shot at it. Yeah, give it a bite. Okay, a little, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a little nibble. All right, so you got this guy, Joe Gillis, played by William Holden. Um, he opens up, he's face down in a pool, and it's like, oh, man, what, how did I get here? This is how the story starts. <laughs> Basically one of those. And then um, they go to, like, he's a, he's a writer in Hollywood. It's kind of down on his luck, just like we are talking about earlier. Um, like the war of attrition, he's like in a lull basically in his career. He's arguing with his agent, um, his car, he's lacking payments on that. So the people that I don't even know if they do this anymore, guys in suits running after him for his car payments, trying to get it. So he's getting chased by those guys. He blows a tire, ends up at this house on Sunset Boulevard. And it's like this old house. He put, he gets their car into the garage. He thinks he can just chill there. No one's going to find him. Sure enough, this lady's like, hey, boy, what are you doing over there? Come in here. Walks in there. She's like, yeah, I want this coffin like with red leather or whatever felt in it. And she pulls the thing back. It's for her monkey that just passed away. She's got a weird, <laughs> uh, weird kind of butler um, <laughs> who we found out later was like a director for her silent movies. But Norma Desmond was a famous silent film actress and with filmed obviously going to scripts and words and color and all this stuff she kind of got put on the back burner and she her career went away right she was working with uh Cecil B DeMille and she has this huge script on her desk and Holden obviously William Holden Joe Gillis's character sees that he thinks all right I can get some money out of this lady she says she's got it I'm going to write these um I'm going to help her write the script take it to Paramount and it just kind of goes through her journey of trying to get back to her film career she's 50 and at this time she feels like she's you know, going to die soon, basically. A hundred. Exactly, yeah. right? And uh, nowadays, I think it's changed a little bit for, for uh, females as actors. But yeah, so she kind of loses it at the end. Um, she actually shoots Joe Gillis, William Holden's character, in the back. That's how he ends up in the pool. She goes to jail. She's got like her last scene. Um, 
<laughs> and they set up the cameras as she's about to go to jail. And she's like, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up, which is like an iconic mm-hmm. line that we've heard in a ton of different movies and shows. And that's the synopsis. That's the synopsis. That was none of us had well, very well done. And that monkey, the chimpanzee <laughs> reveal was so bizarre. So bizarre. So that weird. caught me so off guard. It's <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I think it's her husband or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a monkey yeah, or in a like suit. Something fucked up. Yeah. yeah. But so wait, so this is all of our first time seeing it, which is interesting. And then interesting for us because we have writer actors on this podcast, you know. Um so, Connor, question for you. First impressions of this film when you watched it? I absolutely loved it. I was blown away. I was mm-hmm. upset at myself for not having seen this earlier. I thought mm-hmm. there's such a... I mean, first of all, there was just these shades of early noir that were so cool. I got glimpses of The Shining. Like, I wonder if Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick had watched this before The Shining about this character going insane around the creative process. Um I loved it and just the setting and there's such a economical writing style to these old black and white movies that are so mm. cool. Just nothing. Everything is just where it needs to be. Okay. I was just going to ask if you could elaborate on that, on the economic um, style. So yeah. Just very tight storytelling mm-hmm. and very crisp dialogue and just a really well-told coherent story. Did you have an issue with the time of this movie? Did you feel like it it went the two hours where you feel like you're entertained and you're in the story the whole time? Uh, I so I paused. I, I watched half of it, um, okay, and then I went down a rabbit hole of William Holden's life. Which oh, interesting. If we after we get to the movie, if we have time, like his oh, life, no, we can yeah, we can, can talk, talk about, about it whenever. It right, yeah, right now, yeah. if you want. His life was insane. So his dad um, got sick very young. And so he took over um, as the head of the household and he was kind of the youngest of or the oldest of his siblings. So he kind of had that provider protector Mm. core wound. Right. And then he goes off. um, He starts to get into Hollywood. He gets noticed at a Pasadena play for playing an old man. A talent scout brings him into Paramount, signs him on a big deal. And he has this rise kind of as a young actor where he's playing the young hotshot, but then it kind of falls apart and he doesn't get a big role for a long time. Then he enlisted in World War II and so did his younger brother. And his younger brother got killed in combat and it Mm -hmm. just kind of destroyed this actor. Mm -hmm. And it led to just long, decades long of addiction and drinking because he had Mm -hmm. survivor's remorse. He mm-hmm. wanted to go fight with his brother um, and felt guilty his entire life. And then when you get into the back end of his career, what was so cool is the meta part of this story. So Sunset Boulevard was about a struggling creative and he had been really struggling up until this point when he got this role. And this launched him into the stratosphere of another leading man phase. And he made tons of money after this. So and he and he ended up dating like Aubrey Hepburn. He professed his love to her, but she said no because um, he had gotten uh, a vasectomy and she wanted to have kids. Oh no! <laughs> but he dated. Did she know that they were reversible? I, I was going to say, can you switch reversible. those? Yeah, yeah. It's just Maybe a Uno card away. Yeah, yeah, and then I just got cringes from like, what does a 1950s vasectomy look like? Oh, oh it was like true, terrifying. True. 
What kind big of scissors. creepy instruments? Yeah, were they using? Take a big sniff of this laudanum or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. That yeah. that's interesting though, because you talk about like the the meta ness of this. That's like woven throughout all of this because mm. that happened a little bit with. Um, I think the director, Billy Wilder and, and, and Gloria Swanson, Gloria, yeah. uh, they made a movie. Um, I forget the name of it, but um, it was financed by JFK's father, mm-hmm. Joseph wow. uh, Kennedy. Who a famous Gloria, bootlegger. Yes. Yep. That's how they got a lot of their money. <laughs> bootlegging from Canada, I, I think. Booze. And um, that movie like didn't go anywhere and they didn't show it in the States. The movie that they watch in her room in her living room was scenes from that movie that were never no released. Way. Yeah. So that were never released in the US. Yeah. Just wild. And she did yeah, she dated him for a little bit and he financed that movie. And then also Billy Wilder, after that movie kind of flopped, um, it took him like a little bit and then getting this that kind of took off. This movie was nominated for what or won three Oscars and nominated for uh, a couple other things. So yeah, it's it's wild. Hollywood this, and yeah, this feels like it has connected. A lot of the life imitates art, art imitates life, like mm-hmm. just offshoots. The more I started reading about this online, there's so many subplots to this movie and stories yeah. and branches. It, it's really cool. Same with uh, is it uh, Erich? How do you pronounce his first name? Von Strauheim. Strauheim. He's Eric. A, maybe is it Eric? I don't know if Eric it's like von Strauch- he played yeah, he, Max, he played Max von Meyer German yeah yeah so he was uh, just more metanist he was a, a silent film director and he had to do this role because he was running out of money in his wow. later in his later stages and he was upset that he had to play that da- he's called it that damn Butler role but wow. um, yeah he needed the money and he he did this role for that so it's mm-hmm. yeah, a ton of that stuff's pretty interesting isn't it I feel. Well, I was oh. going to say, I feel like this is such a, like, classic when I think of, like, Hollywood, like, golden age of Hollywood. Like, that's what this movie conjures for me personally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just fascinating that the culture of Hollywood doesn't really change. I mean, the, no. at all. But I I love that, too. I was like, you know, the silent film stars despise the talking film stars and you have movie stars now who despise the TikTok influencers. It's like there's always a baked in conflict. Like there's always a new generation with a new medium that's because pissing off the old stars. Yeah, but there's a lot of ego to that, right? Because it's look at me, look at me. And then that attention's going somewhere else, like you're saying, to TikTok. And it's like, wait, hey, I'm still over here. Like turn your attention back over this way. Well, I also think it's kind of gatekeepery as well, right? Like these older movie stars, I read this great book, um, The Kid Stays in the Picture. If you haven't checked it out, it's amazing. And just like learning about how stars, you know, were basically locked into like these multi-year, multi-picture deals with these studios. We kind of see it now with deals with like Netflix and stuff. Like you'll see talent going and they'll sign like a three-picture deal Mm. at Netflix. It's kind of the same model, but I think it was very gatekeepery. You know, TV allowed more actors to come into your home. It wasn't any more like this ego, like you're saying, David, like on the big screen. And then you've got like YouTube, which opened up, you know, careers for like people like Connor Pritchard, for example. We wouldn't have workaholics if we didn't have YouTube. And then now with TikTok, it's like you can make that in your fucking room with your mm-hmm. phone, you know? So I do think it's like the establishment gets a little bit 
um, irked, right? Like, and that's what we see with this character with Norman Desmond. Like, she's pissed off that, like, she's been replaced. She's redundant. Um, so it's a very cool message that I think, yeah, we are seeing in today's society as well. Yeah. Yeah, there was just some great iconic lines, like lines that were clearly outdated and cheesy, but lines that were I thought were hilarious and insightful. Do you have any faves? Uh, hello, Hawkeye. Um, how about when they get to the voiceover, an army of uh, beauty experts. And I loved her line where she's like, you know, I've lost half a pound since Tuesday. <laughs> she's wearing all that stuff on her face. Yeah. My favorite was... Um, when he pulls into the house, he says, you used to, you used to be big. Like he, she's trying to figure yeah. out. And she goes, I am big. It's the pictures that got smaller. Yeah. And yes, also, that was- chills. are you yeah. trying for a comeback? And she says, not a comeback. It's a return. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Well, okay. So something that stuck out to me in the movie and Connor, I wonder if you can feel the pain of this moment. So you sort of touched on it in the synopsis, David. So he walks in and he sees all these loose papers on her desk and she's like, I've got this movie. It's all here. And he's reading it and it's total garbage. And he's like, I have to edit the shit out of this. Right. Connor, do you get approached a lot of times by people who have ideas and no clue you know they're like you just you just do it and then you're like oh, this is this is oh, nothing oh yeah i mean the joke in my family is my brother's a doctor so i get the bad uh movie pitches and he gets the rashes <laughs> it's like <Okay>. he, <laughs> he gets people showing him body parts um but i have cousins from georgia who call me all the time with the worst pitches ever <laughs> like one of them he wanted to do uh r-rated monday night football and just basically have nudity and you're like you literally i can't you can't do that can't do there's that. so many legal obstacles but i would say yeah, I, I i get bad pitches yeah once a week i I felt like that was just so relatable because, yeah, if you're not in the industry, I mean, the difference is this character, Norman Desmond, she is in the industry, but she's so deluded. She thinks that like her, you know, script is the best thing ever and that uh, Cecil B. DeMille is just going to direct it. But yeah, it's like coming to terms with your limitations, maybe. I don't know. It's an interesting theme that runs throughout. Yeah, I used to. I used to have a 70 to 80 year old neighbor in West Hollywood who was always out watering her plants in the front yard. She had so much plastic surgery that her face was kind of like stretched back. And she would tell me about all the auditions that she was going to. um, And she was going to break in at any moment. And she had just, like Norma, uh, she had just never let go of that dream and was still out there auditioning. I just, it's crazy. I mean, I think Hollywood makes some people delusional and desperate. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the byproduct of chasing success. It's also, though, the carrot, right? Like you you might be about to throw in the towel and then you just get this like big bite of a carrot. And then you're always chasing that next bite or um, chasing the dragon, I guess. Like, I think that's a heroin thing, but you guys know what I'm saying. Fame uh, fame a little bit can probably be like heroin. I don't know, but I've heard. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not famous. Um, Connor, do you feel famous? Because, I mean, you you created this, like, pretty pretty well-known show. Do people, like, get flustered around you? No, hell hell no. I mean, mm-hmm. your writers, no one knows who writers are, and that's how I want to keep it. I wouldn't wish fame upon my worst enemy. Um, <laughs> I've been out with actors uh, who are married and very famous, and I've seen them get propositioned in front of people, and I oh my just gosh. would Jeez. never 
I'm happily married and I would never <laughs> just want to be. Propositioned, you say like they just come up oh. and they're like, hello, would you like to fuck? Yes, I've seen that happen. Oh my God. See, multiple I, times. I think about that sometimes. Like, I want to be a successful working actor, right? And whether right. I'm just that guy that was in that thing consistently, that's fine. Or if people do know me, like, hey, blah, blah. But parts of me, like when I'm out with my friends, I think about like, yeah, what if I couldn't just sit here and hang out without yeah. being, you know, like bothered? I don't know. It, it is I interesting. Mean, my, my boss is extremely high profile mm-hmm. and I've been around him and most people are pretty chill when it comes to, you know, like if you see that you're having a dinner or something, but it is crazy the the amount of um, entitlement people think that they have to you if you are to come well up. Known. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. The flip I mean, side I actually, of that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Well, I was going to say, David, what you said made me laugh because I was thinking of that actor, Andy Circus, who now is becoming more face recognizable. But my mom lives in a very tiny town in, in Thailand and actually Andy Circus's um, sister also lives there and they were working together at one time and I feel like Andy now is becoming more famous but he kind of had the dream job right like he got to crawl around on the floor and be golem <laughs> and just have so much fun yeah. and these amazing actors but then like up until maybe like five or six years ago He's people didn't Black, really know what he Black Panther like. he was mm-hmm. himself right as a villain yeah 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 well, I, sorry did I, I cut you off no again? no that was, that's a good point but in this movie the flip side of that right the the actors that do get jaded by their success and she lost her mind and Mm -hmm. she thinks she's better than everybody else. And this guy is Eric is stringing her along and writing the letters for her to keep her going and uh, all that stuff lying about the meetings that she's going to get with the 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 butler butler. slash former husband, former husband slash slash uh, director. (laughs) Yeah. That's been with her her whole career. But that's interesting because that relationship dynamic is like, he's almost sycophantic too. Like how yeah. could you be the first husband that then has welcomed the second and third husband and is now watching this young gun go to bed every night with the woman that you so clearly are obsessed with, right? Yeah. That, is, that was a fascinating dynamic. And I think it was kind of like he was, uh, she was his muse, right? Like it mm. feels like he tried to move on and he couldn't do it. That's what brought him you know, creative energy. And so he was happy to just be around her around in her that, orbit. Yeah. yeah. We were walking. I don't know if I would be a butler, by the way, <laughs> if I, you know, for my muse, for I'd you. be like, no, nah, I'm good. Especially yeah. if it was your ex. Yeah. Like, ah, I think I'll take the couch and the fridge and we're out of here. Um, yeah. But we were walking home from this movie and I was like, she said she had a million dollars. Obviously this is a big picture that she's working on and big budget. Like, why is why aren't they shooting stuff themselves? I guess they just didn't do it back then or her ego is so big that she wouldn't do that. But if you want your return and not the comeback, make some indie stuff with that <laughs> bankroll you got. Did stuff work in those days, I don't, though? I, this, mean, it's not, I don't know. It's That's, not like everybody had access to a porn studio in the valley. True, and know, it's to, the and, film and cutting the yeah. picture together probably I took think a it lot was, longer. A lot. Have you guys been to the Academy Museum down in uh, Miracle Mile? Not no. yet. Okay. Anybody outside of LA, they just opened up this Academy Museum, which is fascinating because, I mean, especially for us, we work in the business or we're, tr- you know, Dave and I are on the bubble. Um, but they have these old editing machines and they are fucking huge. Like they are as big as 
like one whole half of your living room. And my partner, Scott, is an editor. And f- to see him look at this machine and be like, oh my God, you know, now he can work off a laptop. It's just, I think it is in this day and age, like the reason she doesn't do it, David, is because it's so inaccessible. And a million dollars probably wouldn't even cover, you know, whatever. Yeah, but if you're showing, if you're making sure. some some shorter movies in your town, they got a great house that they can shoot at, right? Um, and cut it together. You could, they probably at that time could have made something and sold it to a couple theaters in town yeah. is what I'm kind of getting at just to get on people's radar a little bit, get to working with some people, yes. some directors, some editors, things like that. And then like, Oh, she, she can speak. She does. She, she, it's not all just face emotions. Uh, that was kind of just my thought process coming out of that, yeah. but she wants to take a big swing because of where her mindset is at and what she used to be. Yeah, but I feel uh, like that would have been beneath her to even yeah, stoop exactly. to the indie level. 100%. And I think the at in that time, like as I studied have studied Hollywood, the, it was really it was monopolized by the early studio systems. They controlled all facets Everything. of talent distribution. And I think it wasn't until the seventies, with the rise of the directing mavericks, the Scorseses, that they really started to challenge the studio system. And now this new phase that we're in is basically corporate conglomerate, you know, Comcast, Disney. So it's a combination of these mavericks that come in to work for these big conglomerates that own everything. Mm -hmm. I am waiting for the day where it's like Coca-Cola brings you Wolf of Wall Street 17. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's, it's only a matter of time, I think, as well. Like whenever I watch a film... Not so much in this film, obviously. I don't know if this was such a practice in the 50s, but it's so obvious when, you know, a scene is sponsored, like a family scene will have a Pepsi face forward and you're just like, I see you corporations Mm. trying to sneak into our art. I see you. (laughs) But yeah, okay, so let's talk about the, the depiction of the women in this because this is something David and I talk about a lot in these films. I think this movie has two really interesting, great female characters, which we love to see. I think, um, you know, obviously Norma Desmond, our main character, her descent from, you know, is it's a very interesting character arc. But I wanted to ask what you guys thought about the portrayal specifically of Miss Betty Schaefer, who plays the, you know, scripty gal um, who he falls in love Can with. Can I get a quick shout out to my girl Nancy Olson from yeah, Mil- Nancy. Mille, Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Oh, hello, yep. Nancy she, from Wil- she, Milwaukee. She went to the University of Wisconsin and then transferred to UCLA. And then uh, she got scooped up by Paramount. So just think, a quick shot. Pa- do you think she was a Packers fan, David? Was the oh, Packers around? When she- of course she was a Packers <laughs> fan. But yeah, to for, for Betty's character, are, are you saying that, like we talk about having her own story, that's not just revolved well, around a like a guy character a man. Right? or man character. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I also thought it was interesting, you know, she's engaged to someone else. She definitely sasses him a little bit throughout. We see this like interaction, but I feel like, spoiler alert, she falls in love with him, you yeah. know, pretty fucking easily. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the script is great, but did you guys feel like that was a little rushed? Because I did. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they clearly set up the love, the drama triangle between those three to create the jealousy but their love story i think yeah i think you could have told that movie without her um you could have taken them out and they they did give her the like hey i want to be a i don't just want to be a reader i want to be a writer and she's Mm -hmm. like the og peggy olsen from Mad Men. Mm -hmm. 
who's trying to make it in the male dominated world. So they gave her character a little bit of dimension, but I, you know, as a writer, I think you could have lift that all out. So for you two as writers, then what do you insert so that Norma gets jealous? Cause that's why she shot uh, Joe in the back. Cause that confrontation, I mean, I, uh, Nancy, not- Betty, Betty comes to the yeah. house because totally. uh, Norma's creeping on him, listening on the phone. Norma actually calls her and then she's getting more jealous, more jealous because she's controlling and just only wants to be her and Joe. So then, yeah, if you do take that out, what do you put in to have Gloria th- or Norma get set off? I personally think with that shot where she sees the script that he's writing, if it was just mm-hmm. his name, but she found out that they cast another actress in her mm-hmm. story, like that, that yeah. could have done it too. Um, yeah. It could have been sure. her just thinking he was cheating. Like she seemed so paranoid. Like she could have seen, you know, maybe he was like buying lipsticks for uh, inspiration for the script he was writing and then she gets jealous. You know, there's ways to do it. I yeah. Because yeah. uh, no, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, now that you bring it up, it was kind of would be my only note that it made the big betrayal a love triangle and jealousy and not about this toxic, the work dysfunctional creative process, which most mm-hmm. of the movie was about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. We're, while we're watching this and just, uh, Paris, I'll get right back to your point, but I just thought it was interesting. While we're watching this, uh, my partner was saying like, what if he's, this is a dream this whole time. And I was thinking like, maybe not a dream, but he's descent into like madness because he lost his agent. And they talked about like, you lose your legs. His agent tells him, if you lost your legs, maybe you'd be a better writer. You won't be able to walk away from the, the typewriter or whatever. So I did think I was like telling her, I hope that happened, but they didn't give me mm-hmm. any indication that he was losing his mind. Cause if he was imagining that in that old, and it, maybe it was a deserted mansion and yeah. he knew of Norma and he's creating all that in his head so he can come up wow. with a good story to sell later. I thought that would be an interesting movie as well. Yeah. A little bit like the shining. Yeah. Yeah, he's exactly. Kind of picturing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's but picturing I think the whole thing. Could, not, not every movie can be like, and then he woke up. You know, that's the kind of a trope I think that we see a lot. Yeah, in. that's what I I'll say. That, not dream, yeah. but he actually was kind of going crazy. Like, yeah, he like w- adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what also yeah. made me laugh about the female characters was uh, the German butler who said, Madame has moments of melancholy. And it just like, I started laughing because I was like, wow, in 80 years, our awareness and our understanding of mental health mm-hmm has come so far. Like this used to be an era where if your wife was pissing you off, you could get her sent to a mental institution. And there was no such thing as like, I don't think they were talking about anxiety or depression. They're just like melancholy. You just have melancholy. We don't understand it, but you're sad and you Ah, have emotions. She tried to kill herself 17 (laughs) times, but it's just a little case. So they they took away the scissors, sharp objects. They Mm -hmm. removed the doorknobs on her doors. Yeah, don't ask her if she's all right. Like don't sit her down, talk to her. None of that. Just take away the sharp things. Yeah. I mean, it's. I will say of its time, like I said, David and I look – watch a lot of these movies i think the the character arc of our main actress obviously is incredible and it's such an interesting role and i'm sure she had a blast doing it um but yeah i mean it's always kind of a bummer when like the betty character is like a bit of a prop um but yeah like you said i like that she had aspirations she wasn't just like i'm gonna get married that's great yeah she wanted i wonder if given that context, it was progressive, like they, that they even made her want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Like what were other movies doing at the time where they just 
being even more of a prop. But yeah. Yeah. And when did women break into Hollywood and start writing? Well, I know that there's some early duos, husband, wife duos writing together. I would have to look into that. That's a fascinating part of our history because, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, we know from literature that a lot of women wrote under pen names, but with movie selling, you can't really just write a book and send it to your publisher. You have to kind of go in and take notes. That'd be something good. Yeah. What was the first, without a, like a ghost writer or pen name, the first movie that was greenlit by a woman writer by a major yeah. studio. Oh, I smell some interesting IP. Maybe an <laughs> idea for a hidden figures type uh, type show. Well, yeah. let's talk about uh, diversity because our lovely co-host David William Rogers is a man with melanin, and this movie <laughs> had black and white in terms say, of coloring. It was half but, black. Okay, but yeah, no, no people of color or any kind of representation in this film. Yes. All right, is that a question? Is that to me? I mean, it's a, it's, a sta- it's a question slash statement, yeah. isn't it? It's like not to me. Correct. I didn't see anybody of color in this movie. Um, As a person of color, I did not. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get a gardener in this movie. No, you know what I mean? we didn't. <laughs> like, like, like when they were cleaning up the house when Joe's getting settled in there. Could have had somebody like let you know give us a pool, yeah. you know, let it clean the pool or cut the hedges no. or something. Just even like, in four weddings and a funeral, yeah, you got that one you got guy, the guy in the, the one funeral. Yeah, yeah. So give me one of those. Just a guy in the yard. Yeah. No, yeah, we got. Yeah, there are only it's 1950s in LA and only white people live here. I'm so sorry to yeah, tell you, but uh, this is how it, it goes. So, I this is a good reason too, uh, Paris. I know you wanted to watch more of these, um, and I do as well. But I want to start like. When are we going to find that one from the 50s, the 40s, whatever, mm-hmm. that it's like, oh, there it is. This person had some lines or, uh, mm-hmm. right, they started including yeah. people of color more I mean, in the story. Because, I mean, Sidney Poitier is the most famous. Uh, was he, like, the first guy? And then, actually, again, to the Academy Museum, I cannot remember her name because I'm the worst person in the world, but there is a empty slot for an Academy Award for the actress that should have gotten one. She played all the Mammy characters. I can find out what her name is real quick. She was in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I don't. I forget her name as well. But um, yeah, it's just, even though they were getting typecast. Like, Hattie, Mc, Hattie McDaniel, McDaniel. I'm sure you guys yeah. know her name. Even yeah. though they're getting typecast, like Hattie McDaniel, like but they were starting to be included in story. Yeah. So... I mean, were you guys surprised that there was no one of color? I pretty much could tell. From not at all. Like, as no. soon as this thing started, yeah. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like I'm not. I'm just not surprised. All the movies I've seen and yeah. what I've known of, like Hollywood history, movie history, just in general, like this, it's that's what it was, and that's what. Yeah. To to you guys' point, like that structure of the gatekeeping, there wasn't. They weren't really going to probably give people of color chances for yep. a long time while they're while they're making movies and keeping people at arm's distance and structuring it the way yeah. they want to yeah you know it's yeah it's, it's not surprising it's like weird the the different uh time periods we go into with these episodes david it's like you know you do the 90s and early 2000s and you're like someone's gonna definitely call someone gay like and <laughs> mm-hmm. it's gonna be really jarring and then you know like breakfast at tiffany's we're just like we keep coming back to it because that was so horrific and it was like one of our first movies that we did we're like oh my god what is happening that was like the 60s right and then yeah yeah, it's just every time period has its um 
has this it, thing that you're it would like, be okay. very cool if like criterion classics or amc took some of these old movies script mm. everything and remade them with black actors just in a new mm-hmm. way yeah like and in even in the style just as like fun remakes like that would be so cool to because and- yeah there's there's nothing about this movie that has anything mm-hmm. due to like an ethnic background race it's just mm-hmm. it's just the hollywood business so you could literally cast anybody in any role yeah yeah well we're getting a little long at the tooth because i had some uh technical difficulties but mm-hmm. was there anything else that stood out to you guys from this film that you want to raise because it is a very rich backdrop and a part of american film history i, I could do a couple real quick um so yeah, that scene where um norma comes to paramount right and mm-hmm. she sits in that chair and all the people the light comes on her for a second i thought that was this amazing scene because she gets the spotlight once again for a little bit all the people come up mm-hmm. to her uh while they're shooting um that was actually they asked hetty lamar who was starring in that film that uh it's called samson and delilah that demille was shooting at paramount at the time so that's what they walk into and they wanted Hetty Lamar to like get up and be- take a cameo and walk away and let her sit in the chair. But she wanted 25 grand in 20, <laughs> which is like 250 grand in 2015 dollars. Oh so they said no to that. And then they offered, they just asked if they could sit in her chair and she wanted 10 grand for that. So then DeMille, who was already attached to the picture, said she can just sit in my chair while I'm walking off. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And then the house yeah. that they shot it in was a Getty house. Um oh, the out the outside. Yeah, the exterior. The interior was on a Paramount stage. I mm. I have two questions, but um one is more fun. The first one is like I feel like at this era you have some actors who are holding on to the radio teleplay style of speaking. Mm-hmm. And some that are playing it more real life. And you get into these movies and some of them are overacting and some of them are playing it straight. Yeah. And it's kind of this weird mishmash of both. So I, I really, I wanted to kind of study acting more and like, when did it really level out into these more realistic performances? Because there's still these vapors of over-dramatized, Almost you know, theater-like, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Um, you're on a stage, Yeah. I yeah. don't have an answer. I don't know. David, do you know? No, I don't, but that is that is interesting. Um, yeah, we'll have to check that out because it is interesting, the different style of acting, that, even as we watch these movies again, like we get kind of a glimpse into the different techniques. I have a fun question maybe we could yeah, wrap yeah. up with. Shoot. Uh, what actor or actress would you want to live with and write with like this? So you are the screenwriter and you're living with an actor or an actress in their decrepit, abandoned Hollywood Hills home, who would so you pick? Not just anybody from this movie. It could be anybody. Yeah, anybody living now. You get put in this scenario with a crazy, crazy actor or actress with a seven hundred page script that you got to edit mm. down, and you end up living together for a few dysfunctional and very alcoholic months. <laughs> David, uh, yeah, you? I'll let you think because I'm not really. I'm not really a writer, but I I'm just gonna say Larry David just so I can <laughs> be in the same house with him for a That's while. So good. Uh, I thought my mind went to like the sexual aspect, like 
give me give me like a hot actress even though she's going crazy like i still get to get at her a little bit but i'm gonna i'm gonna go with such a creep that's why i said i my mind started to go there but (laughs) that's just my you know my caveman brain but i would go with for sure i go with larry david because because i think i'd be geeking out the whole time that's great yeah i think i okay so i have a couple ways to answer this so i immediately thought of uh what's her name natasha leone because i think she is so fun and so creative and like definitely she seems like she could go kind of crazy later in life maybe that's not you know saying anything about her but she's just so eccentric and then i was like well i would just probably choose jason mo because i work with him and i know him (laughs) and i know his already his eccentricities and i will could navigate those um but then my final answer i landed on um amy poehler or Kristen wig or tina fey one of the ladies of comedy who I mean, that's kind of a cheating answer because they also all write, but those are the types of women that like, if I got to write with them, I feel like you would just laugh all the time and it, or it would be so silly and fun. So three very different answers. Um, and I had to cover all my bases, but yes, Connor, what about you? you, I, my process was Daniel day Lewis first came into my head, but then I feel like it would get too eccentric and weird and detailed. He's so method. He's yeah. so method. And we would start to drive each other crazy. Then I was like, yeah. what about someone fun? Eddie Murphy. And I was like, ah, mm. I feel like that he might just get bored. And so I landed on the most toxic one of all. It would be a bloodbath. We'd probably get in a fist fight and try to kill each other multiple times. But your countryman, Mel Gibson. Oh my yeah. God. Wow. That- Mel Gibson. You can have him. Yeah. Mel Gibson. You know what? And- I'll just go ahead. I'll just go ahead and get him and lock him in a house with you now. Save us all the trouble. All right, Paris. Get him out of public life. Paris, which movie between Mel- with Connor and Mel Gibson or Connor and Daniel Day Lewis? Which you would you rather watch? Oh, definitely in, in Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis. I all I, day. I think so too, but I think more of the wild card <laughs> would definitely be Mel Gibson. <laughs> if you want to talk about like going nuts. I just yeah. have this image of this like mental picture of Daniel Day Lewis being like, Connor, we're gonna write this with my left foot, like <laughs> exclusively, you know. And you have to, yeah. you have this like chicken scratch paper yeah. where you're like, what does this say, uh, Connor? So I'm gonna just talk to me. I'm gonna set up the biggest domino uh, line throughout the house, and we're gonna knock yeah. it over two years time. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the weirdest, weirdest creative r- rituals with Daniel Day Lewis, but I just think Mel Gibson and I with the little some drugs and alcohol could come up with yeah. the best action movie ever made. <laughs> yeah, he's, for sure. he's done his time in white guy prison and he's uncanceled now. I've noticed a trend. So he's back and he makes good movies. Um, but no, that is a good fun question to end on. Although David, I feel like you might have one more fun fact because you seemed like you were about typically. Um, I feel like I forgot a couple, but oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, re- I remember one. Okay. Yeah. So I'll share it. I, I looked on trivia before and Speaking of um, Norma returning to Paramount, so she gets stopped at the gate in her car, her old weird car, and there's this new guard and he doesn't recognize her. So she doesn't have an appointment and she's like, I'm here to see, you know, Cecil D. DeMille and whatever. And then this older guard comes out and he's like, oh my God, Miss Desmond, Miss Desmond. And she's like, he's like, don't you know who this is? And she's like, I built this studio. And then she gets let in. And the true thing of it is that in a way she did almost build Paramount because she was one of their most iconic stars um, when the, when the company was starting. So I thought that was a really cool little 
tidbit again, like the inside baseball thing. That is interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Panamon is just so iconic. Even when I drive by it so now, cool. it's just it's just so cool. And I think they're making a, a big revival now. So it just feels like the classic Hollywood studio. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's very very old as well. I feel like it's one of the OGs because they've all kind of bought each other up and Paramount still exists, mm-hmm. which is great. Do you guys uh, have Paramount Plus? I do. Through I get it from Same. get it from my mama. We like share <laughs> I shared my Apple like family plan so they can get like Apple Music, Apple Plus, and then they subscribe to Paramount. So now when I go on my Apple Plus app, I mm. they they share it. So yeah, there's a couple of things you can do on the Apple thing. But I just did notice, Paris, that this movie came out the same year as All About Eve, which we did uh-huh. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And that one, right? And that's another behind the scenes showbiz movie. Mm. And that one cleaned up most of the Oscars. Um, Oscars. Oscars and Oscars. But yeah, Sunset Boulevard got nominated he, for a ton of stuff as well. I think William Holden won for not this role, but a one in the near future. And then he got arrested for drunk driving home from the Oscars, crashed his car. <laughs> like he was a hot mess. Wow. Uh, but, do not drink and drive, people. Yeah. Do not do it. Nah. Um, even if you have an Oscar, it's not a good get out of jail free car, unfortunately. Take an Uber, even though they're harder to get these days. Schedule, yeah. schedule one. So, okay. So before we jump into, you know, we do our shout out. We have to decide if this movie's aged or not um i just wanted to revisit with connor because and this is totally putting you on the spot but we always ask people this on the pod so you obviously work with a a lot of young writers i cannot speak um and then so i was wondering if you have any advice for people who maybe want to start out in writing and you know maybe offer some encouragement to them oh yeah i mean this is something i could talk about for hours but i think when writers are in their early to mid 20s it's okay to take your time and don't jump right into trying to make it and get repped right away i meet so many writers that do that and they end up not being interesting people so i always encourage writers to get out of school go travel go make mistakes go get into good and bad relationships create stories that you're going to revisit i did it And I still go back uh, into the experiences of my 20s and pull from them for inspiration now that I'm old and married and bored. Bored. (laughs) Boring, right? So I think it's like if you're going to be a writer, you have to be an interesting person. Otherwise, you're just going to be regurgitating what already exists. So that's my big advice. Travel more. Put it on credit cards. Find a way to pay it off and just generate stories in your 20s. It's awesome. Yeah, get that that life experience to pull from. Yeah. But of course, as well, you know, like not to, this is not a a sponsored post, but, um, you know, there are teachers like you out there. There's groups like Script Anatomy out there. There are, especially like post pandemic, I feel like there has never been more accessibility for people who want to learn. So if you didn't go to film school or go to do writing at university level, like, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go back and get a very expensive degree at like a prestigious university. There are so many organizations and communities. I know Facebook is kind of redundant now, but there are a lot of like groups on there. There's um, Twitter is a great resource. And yeah, people like Connor. I mean, I took a class with you. I think I wrote one of my favorite better pilots, um, you know, and it's like, 
yeah, reach out, you know, find Connor online. He offers coaching as well, which is amazing. And um, connect with him. Thank you. I remember your anti-pilot very well. Yeah, and everybody yeah. hates the name. It's it's called Management, and it's yeah. about an aunt that becomes a manager. That's and, uh, actually one of my like, favorites yeah. of yours. Thanks, yeah. David. Well, Connor was the reason I, it's so strong. I was in his class when we came up with the, you know, you had to pitch it and hone it and work on characters and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that class was very, very foundational for my understanding of writing and uh, especially comedy because you, I had such a great teacher. You learn more in five weeks there with the script anatomy curriculum than you will in four years at a school. I love that. Yeah. I love awesome. that. Okay. Well, Connor, we're excited for everybody to find you. Do you have socials that you can plug? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? How do people find you? I am actually in the process of getting rid of Instagram. I'm doing something Ooh. called the long goodbye where I'm unfollowing a friend every day and I'm clo- uh. <laughs> I'm closing it down because I'm jumping ship to Mighty Networks and my platform called Only Writers. So if anyone wants to f- find me there, it's just uh, onlywriters.co. Nice. And the rest of the socials will be gone in a month or so. Look, it's probably for the best, but I do think the long goodbye is really funny. So you just like say goodbye to them and then I'll follow them. Yeah. And I'm slowly, I have two months left to say goodbye to the rest of the people. And I'm starting to do them in chunks now because I'm way behind. But yeah, (laughs) I I give you a tribute post to a cool creative friend that I want my friends to follow. But I think I'm kind of done with uh, Facebook and Instagram and I think I've got what I needed out of them and now I'm going to build my own social media. That's awesome. Very fair. All right. Well, speaking of social media and networks, I try to do good. uh, Sometimes I don't work like the segues, but it takes a village to make a film like this, especially back in these days when shit was clunky as fuck. Um, So we have to give someone a shout out from the cast or crew. David, why don't you go first so that you show us how it's done? All right. I'm going to go with my man, Franz Waxman who was the composer on this and he has a decent amount of credits in the music department, 190. And this guy passed away at like, like 61, I'm thinking. Um, So yeah, pretty young. So he was a composer. Well, he worked several years as like a bank teller paid for piano and harmony and composition lessons um with his salary and then later moved to berlin where he kept studying to be a musician and he actually won an oscar for this movie right yeah so he's been nominated multiple times um 17 nominations and five wins overall so yeah uh shout out to you franz waxman and i love this older music and like and all that stuff that just really puts helps with that emotion behind each and individual mm. scene and like you're like you hear you start to hear something you get sucked in like oh what's gonna happen here this sounds yeah. intense mm. um, it's so funny but i chose the same one because ah. I, I was obsessed <laughs> with the organ score yeah and the, wow. i thought this, this rarely or- happens but when it does it's like the stars align which we <sighs> i was obsessed with the organ music and i thought it was so perfect for this movie this like eerie noir and mm. yeah i i went down the uh waxman rabbit hole as well yeah yeah i love that i love that that means you guys had very similar you know experiences taste of this film yeah, yeah. 
Well, I went for someone in the makeup department. I think he was the head of the makeup department, Wally Westmore, because I think in these black and white films, like I would die to see a picture of real life. I'm sure they had to do like crazy, crazy makeup to like make it stand out, you know, on camera with black and white. And because all these actors have these flawless skins, I know it's not, um, it's because it's also not HD, but they just look so, when I look at old movies, I'm like, you look like a, like a God, like a statue come to life. And, yeah. you know, I think the, the makeup department is not always recognized. So Wally also uh, died young, David, which is very sad. He died in 1973. He was 67, but he walked on, worked on a lot of things like Vertigo. He worked on mm. which is a great film, um, fade in, um, he worked on Mod Squad, Bonanza. Like he just had, I mean, it looks like he worked on a lot of very cool things in the the sixties and fifties and seventies up until his death. So, Wally Westmore, we see you and we appreciate. We you. see you and we appreciate. Thank you, you Wally. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your contribution, Wally. R.I.P. We miss you. Now it's time to decide if this film has aged like milk or not. David, would you like to show us again how it's done, how we present our findings? Hey. Okay. So. I'm going to say this movie did not age like milk. All right. I think it's like um, Norma Desmond sipping champagne in the morning. Right. Mm. So you get a little tipsy and you're a little off and it feels like a little jarring at moments. But overall, it's, it's a good day. And that's how I felt about this movie going into it. I had no like history on it, knew nothing about it, loved the setting I saw it in. And I, my eyes are stuck to this movie the whole time. Cause I was just so like taken aback and oh, that choice and what they did there. And look at that, how they shot this. So I, I really appreciate this movie and I like this movie a lot and I'm glad we're starting to watch older films. And yeah, yeah. I think this movie aged well and it holds up just as a, as a picture. Totally. Okay, and Connor, what is your assessment? I agree as well. I think it aged like a fine wine, smoky Cabernet and a hand-rolled cigarette. And um, it just, I was captivated the whole time. And I think my favorite shot was her walking down those stairs at the end, which looked like a painting. Brilliantly lit and set, like the composition of it. I was in and I, 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 I want to watch more of these kind of movies now. It inspired me to go back into the black and whites a little bit more. So I loved it. I think it's three for three then, which doesn't always happen. I will say, of course, uh, I felt like the lack of diversity, but I think, again, we talked about like the context, but I agree. I think also maybe I loved it because I love to see older women you know, talking about aging and, you know, we saw it in All About Eve too. I think I'm not an old quote unquote woman yet. I'm sort of like approaching, you know, I can see my middle age, like in the sort of not too far away distance. And I think it's interesting to discuss, you know, the way that women are portrayed in not only our business, but all through the world and how we're thought of and, you know, what value do we bring to society once we're done, you know, being the birth givers or if you don't become a birth giver, you know, if you, whatever. So yeah, I think this is a great film. I think I now understand why the, it's on the AFI 100. David, I think we should go through that list. And, you know, those guys are pretty smart. We should probably watch more of those movies mm-hmm. on that 
on that list. Um, but yeah, I thought this movie aged like uh, yeah, a delicious cocktail um, that you're like, hmm, what is that? And then you look into it and you're like, oh, it's so classic. It's yeah. like a Tom Collins <laughs> with a watermelon in a it. A Sazerac or an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's the podcast then. Connor, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to chat with you about movies. Thank you, guys. Um, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, nice to meet you, man. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have you back on. We cannot wait to see what happens with all these projects that you have going. Please keep us posted. We love to celebrate our, um, our people. But for now, David, you should go ahead and just check your fridge. Make sure that milk ain't spoiled. Gross, milk, it's gross. That's the show, and we will talk to you soon. Hey.